Would you turn to the book of Ephesians, please? Book of Ephesians. It's in the New Testament. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, it's about right there in your Bibles if you need one. This is the end, by the way. This is the end. And we've been in this, this book for quite a while, and we'll continue to be in it for quite a while longer. And I hope you've been enjoying your, our current series. It's called God's Master Plan, and it's the book of Ephesians. And in this book, we'll, at least the first two chapters, we've found that God has done a lot. God has done a whole lot through Jesus Christ. He has a master plan, and this master plan began before the foundation of the world, which means before the world began, before God spoke it into existence, the plan was set in place. It was not plan B. It was one plan, plan A. And we understand that through Christ, here are some of the things that, we, that the master plan entails. Every spiritual gift in the heavenlies we have, We've been provided. We've been chosen, predestined to live in holiness before God. We have seen that the Father sent His Son, Jesus, to give His life. Here's an oaky saying for you. To take care of the sin problem. I'm sure there's a much better way, eloquent way to say that, but it, He took care of our sin problem and He dealt with it. We've understood that we have an inheritance We've only partially received it, but when we die, when we go up into the heavenlies, we have an inheritance waiting for us in the future. God has done all this, what? Joyfully, open-handedly, not closed-fistedly. I know closed-fistedly is not a word, but He didn't hold His blessings tight. He freely gives them. We've seen and known from experience that all who are in Christ have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What's that mean? We have a down payment on what's to come. Also, that's a twofold sealing, by the way. God has sealed you. You're His if you're in Christ. And you know what? God cares about His own. We've understood that all mankind were dead in their sins. That is, every person who was born was dead in their sins, unable to do anything about that for themselves. My favorite part. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. Through, through who? Through Christ. How? By His death. Made us alive through His death. By grace we've been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's nothing we could have done or could ever do to make ourselves right with God, but He did it all. And through faith, we have access to the Father. Last week, we studied in more depth what Christ accomplished specifically for the Gentiles. Now, that's most of us in this room and most of us who are listening today. We're mostly, we're Gentiles. We're called the uncircumcision. We're described as those who weren't, those who were not a part of the covenant of God. We were far off. 
the specific blessings of God given to the Jewish people. The Jewish people were called the circumcision, who were described as those being near. We were called far. But now, but now, we've been brought near through the sacrificial death of Christ. In fact, we have all been reconciled to God through Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike. Now, everyone comes to God the same way. It's always been the same way through faith. But we come to God through faith in Christ. We understood that when Jesus died, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated the Jew and the Gentile. And through his death, we were brought together because Christ successfully filled the ordinances, the dietary and the sacrificial regulations, therefore making peace reconciling all who are in Christ to God and to each other. Reconciliation. Making us into one man instead of two. That meaning Jew, Gentile. I might even go a little further. Black, white. We're together in Christ. Together. One body one church, a holy temple with Christ being the cornerstone that the entire structure is built upon. A spiritual temple. You are part of a spiritual temple. You are a brick in the wall that God is still building where He lives and will continue to live. And that building is still being built today. I wanted us to remember that. Okay, I only go over that because do you know that according to who you ask, how, how do we learn? How do we learn? According to who you ask, these are some of the statements. According to Zig Ziglar, a repetition is the mother of all learning. Okay, the mother of all learning, I get that. According to Little Wayne, Lil Wayne, the father of all learning is repetition. Or what I prefer, repetition is the key to learning. Repetition is the key to learning. And today's passage is one of repetition. You go, oh my goodness, how long are you going to go on and on until you get it? <laughs> you know, in fact, there aren't too many modern sermons when you look up uh, Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 13, there aren't that many modern sermons that where folks wax eloquent, which I hope to do today, because it's simply repetition. It's repetition of what came in chapters 1 and chapter 2, and specifically the last 11 verses of chapter 2. Here in chapter 3, the writer, who is Paul, begins to pray for his readers. He's praying for them. He starts it, and we'll see this next week too. He starts with the Word, and then it's almost like he changes course. It's, now, I would say, I go, oh, squirrel. I mean, that's, okay, that's why that door, again, I've mentioned this before. That's why all these doors on the side are closed, because I'm like this. And I always blame my wife for my son's ADD, but I think it probably could have come from me. But I'm talking about Paul. He's, he's one of the most exceptional 
He had one of the most exceptional minds of his time, and I would probably say in all time. And no, he, he wants, he needs to give his readers, his hearers, a deeper understanding of the plan of God. He began his prayer, but then all the, boom! He wants to give them the revealed mystery. He wants them to understand the revealed mystery. Well, anytime a person studies the Word of God, they have to remember what the historical context of the times were in which it was written. Well, concerning Ephesians, I'm going to check on, I'm going to make sure, I'm going to test you because you've heard this. You, you knew what the context was. What the, this was a few weeks ago, about a month and a half ago. Now, Paul was explaining, what he was explaining was a gigantic paradigm shift. It was a giant shift from Judaism to Christianity. It was not an easy time. These people, they did not, many people did not want to hear this. A theologian explains in the 21st century, it's universally taken for granted without any dispute or controversy that the Christian church is open to people from all different nationalities and ethnic backgrounds. We take it for granted. But in the first century, no. No. If we put ourselves in the position of the original recipients of this epistle, however, we begin to get a taste of the sense of drama and stirring emotion that this chapter must have provided or provoked in its original audience. It is possible that the people who read the original letter to the Ephesians found chapter 3 to be the most provocative section of the whole epistle. What sparked the most interesting among them was Paul's elaborate comments that are found here in the third chapter regarding the inclusion of the Gentiles in the body of Christ. We can learn from this too. Again, there's... There's no room for racism. None. There's no room for ethnic conflict. None, especially in the Christian church. We're all one race. Hear me? I don't care if you're a Christian or not. We are all one race, human race. There are many different ethnicities, but we're all brothers and sisters. But if you're in Christ, we're one man, all combined as part of a holy temple. Understanding this, let's read this passage. Would you stand out of respect to the Word of God for me, please? Ephesians chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible, I invite you to grab one. There's a blue one that should be in front of you. It's on page 976, 976. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, 
assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone that is the the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, before we begin what I call the the body of the sermon, the, the the main section, we need to understand what Paul meant by mystery. You could think of famous writers, mystery writers from the past. We have Agatha Christie. We have Arthur Conan Doyle. Maybe in recent times, James Patterson. And what do they write? They write novels that keep you thinking. You're wondering, maybe it's, it's a whodunit. That's what many people, when we think of a mystery, it's a, it's a whodunit. But when the New Testament writes about a mystery... They speak of a secret plan, the secret plan of God, which was not known or could be known by human knowledge, ingenuity, or study. The words written to the Colossian Colossian church explains this well. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. Adam didn't know this mystery. Abraham didn't know this mystery. David didn't know this mystery. All the Old Testament saints didn't know this mystery until it was revealed through Christ Jesus. Another way to put it would be it's something previously undreamed of that is now disclosed to believers. Well, we'll begin with the recipient of this mystery, the recipient of this mystery. Now, I want to assume that we all understand that by us reading the Scriptures in front of us that we have received the mystery, all right? Let me explain myself. We've received the mystery. The mystery is written for us in the New Testament. It has been revealed. Now, this doesn't assume that all have acted upon that. Just because you know it does not mean that you're in Christ. You have to act upon this. All that he accomplished by living, dying, and rising again. 
Well, Paul writes of his experience, and he said in verse 1, he explains it. He said, for this reason, again, what reason? The entirety of chap- the first and second chapters, for this reason. We, that's why we reviewed it in the, in the beginning. That's why I went over it and kept going and kept going and kept going and go, my goodness, that's a lot written in that little bit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, wait a minute. A, a prisoner of Christ Jesus? Now, remember back the first week we did this, we understood that Paul was a prisoner in Rome, right? He wasn't. I'm confused here. He wasn't staying in the Nero Hilton Hotel, right? Or was he? No, he was staying in a small room, basically in house arrest, with a Roman guard in that same room. Can you imagine the conversations that that Roman guard had to hear? Oh, I got Paul today. Oh, goodness, good luck. Notice he didn't say a prisoner of Rome, but of Christ. Of Christ. And on behalf of who? You Gentiles. But before you think he's bitter, well, look look at verse 13. Go down to verse 13. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. He did it gladly. He was doing his part. Could you turn to the book of Acts, please? The book of Acts, chapter 21. And I'm going to to read about what happened at the beginning of Paul's imprisonment and why he was imprisoned for the case or for the sake of the Gentiles. Now, this is an extended reading. I'm not going to have it on the screen for two two purposes, excuse me, because I didn't want the... uh, Jessica's back there today, and I didn't want to have to have her click forever and ever, and by the time she was done, she would have carpal tunnel. (laughs) But I also want to have you get in the practice of looking at the Scriptures yourself, reading the Scriptures yourself, hearing them for yourself. Chapter 21, beginning at verse 27, going through the end of chapter 22. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, this is Paul, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. 
Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that as all Jerusalem was in confusion, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! Just a quick aside, can you see how the Jewish people despised the Gentiles? As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, 
the God of our fathers appointed you to know this, his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone, everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who had killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now up until that point, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched out for the whips, their hands for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came to him and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizen for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he bound him. But the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded their priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before him. This was the beginning of Paul's imprisonment. Some three and a half to four years later, he wrote to the Ephesians. Now, as I was reading, and hopefully you were reading, did you notice when the crowd went crazy? When was it? When he spoke, when the Lord said, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. They went nuts. Paul was willing to do what he was called to do. It was his mission. This good Jewish boy who became a man, who became an intense man, was willing to do what God wanted him to do. Let's get back to Ephesians now, chapter 3 beginning in verse 2. Assuming that, which is a, in the Greek language is a conditional statement, so it's, you could easily translate it since, 
Since you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And the mystery wasn't something that a first century Jew would conjure up. No way. We read earlier how he despised the church. He despised them. The mystery of Christ. Christ died for your sins according to the Scripture. He was buried. He was rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And this mystery was charged to explain to all people. Look at verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And the mystery is explained elsewhere in Colossians where he says, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. There's no other way. You might wonder how a man who had such responsibility before the Lord, how would he respond? What would his nature be? What would his nature be? Maybe the common term, what was his, what was his self-esteem like? Could he have been arrogant? Very, I've, I've seen many people who have much learning who are very, very arrogant people. Could he have been a man who sought attention? Hey, Jesus talked to me. I even went up to the third heaven. But he didn't. He understood that he, what he'd been given. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You look at Romans... 9, 10, and 11. We're not going there, but you look at Romans 9, 10, and 11, and Christ, excuse me, Paul had a great love for the people who he was part of. He loved the Jewish people, but he was sent to the Gentiles. He was a humble man so God could use him. Well, what was his opinion or comparing himself to other believers? What, did he compare himself to others? He could have said, well, again, I, I talked to Christ himself. He talked to me. I'm, also, I studied in, at the feet of Gamaliel, 
He did say that, but I, I really, I went to the best school. I'm smarter than you. Did he say that? No, he didn't because he didn't compare himself to others because if it was about comparison, hear me, if it was about comparison, the ultimate comparison, he would have had to compare himself to Christ. Christ, the perfect one. The perfect one who satisfied God's law. You want to compare yourself to, to Christ? Okay, this is what God said. This is God's standard. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I'm looking at people in the room right now. If we think that we're that way, we're probably going, and that's good because none of us are perfect. Only Jesus achieved this standard. And how do we come before God? Again, we've heard it over and over and over. By grace, you have been saved through faith. We began with the recipient of this mystery and move forward to the time of this mystery. All right. I want you to shake out just a second. I want to, I want to reset, all right? Move your, move your necks around. Put your hands, shake it a little bit. Don't reach them out this way. You might hit somebody. That's not good. I'm going to speak now about an attribute of God, all right? I want, I want to think about God. We're thinking about God now. Now, this is an attribute that is only about God. It's not one that he passes down to his kids. God is this. He is immutable, immutable, which means he does not change. All right? Immutable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We also know in the Scriptures that God does not lie. He doesn't change. He doesn't lie. So, he tells the truth. Every time he speaks, he tells the truth. But hear me, that does not mean, and I'm going to read this to make sure I don't miss, misspeak, that God has let people know what the entirety, excuse me, what the entirety of his plans were and will be. He has not let everybody know how everything is going to happen. The secret things belong to the Lord. The secret things. We've been given everything we need to know and when we need to know it. All right, let's use an example. We'll use Abraham. Abram. I'm going to speak of when Abraham was Abram before God changed his name. Now, Abram was told, in you, the nations of the earth, the families of the earth will be blessed. And Abram had to say, that's cool, that's neat, awesome. He had no idea what it meant, but he believed God. 
Okay, I believe you. Years later, Abram did have an understanding. That means I have to have, if my family's going to bless, I have to have a family. I don't have any kids yet. I don't have any kids. And inside of his tent one night, in that great Judean wilderness, he was looking up, and God, I think, called him from the tent. Hey, hey, come here, come out, come out. And Abram said, how in the world is this supposed to happen? I don't have a child. Now, he's not complaining. He's just saying, I don't have a child. And God tells him in this great unsmogged up world that was back then, look at the stars and count them if you can. God just sticking it in a little bit and twisting. He goes, you, you can't count them. And Abraham looks. That's how many descendants you're going to have. He didn't know how that would happen. What did God do? What did he say? And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Faith... He believed God. This was before Abraham made any sacrifices. This is before the law. This is before even circumcision. He wasn't told that a Savior would come and need to die and rise again. The mystery wasn't known until Christ came. And this is known as progressive revelation, progressive revelation, revelation that comes further and further or farther along and farther along through time. Well, speaking of that mystery, look at verse 5. The mystery which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Those before they had no idea that a Messiah would die. Think with me. They had no idea that a Messiah would come and be humble. They were thinking of an earthly king who would come in with much pomp and circumstance. They had no idea that the Christ would fulfill and take away the law of commandments and ordinances. But He did. Prior generations had no idea that Jews and Gentiles would be placed into one spiritual family called the church. But they were. And those in prior generations would have never understood that those in the new covenant would have intimate access with, with the Father through the Son. We're only one time a year in the Old Covenant, and only one person could go into the Holy of Holies. Only one. One day. One person. And I think I mentioned it last week. He had a rope. A rope around his ankle. So if he had an unknown sin, if he dropped dead, he would be pulled out. We have access 
through Christ. <laughs> what a blessing. What then is this nature, is the nature of this mystery? This is the key verse to the whole passage, verse 6. The secret that has been made known. What Christ accomplishes when the people of all nationalities truly are transformed by His Spirit and made into a new, new creations. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery is Christ. And the reason for the mystery, the reason for this mystery is twofold. First, God's wisdom is displayed to the angels, to the angels evil and elect. Verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I picture it this way. Don't be offended, But I look at you, 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 and I know many of your lives, past lives and lives now, failings and good things. I call us undeserved, mishmashed, a gaggle of sinners. And you were saved through Christ's death. And it makes no sense. Why would he save you, 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 you? Why? And believe me, I'm pointing, when I'm pointing, I'm pointing one thumb back at me every time I'm pointing at you. E.F. Scott writes, the hostile powers had sought to frustrate the work of God. I'm speaking now of the angels watching. The hostile powers had sought to frustrate the work of God and believed they had succeeded when they conspired against Christ and brought about His crucifixion. But unwittingly, they had been more, mere instruments in God's hands. The death of Christ had been the very means He had devised for the accomplishment of this plan. So it is here declared that the evil powers, after their brief apparent triumph, had now become aware of the divine wisdom they had never dreamed of. They saw the church arising as the result of Christ's death and giving effect so what they could now perceive to have been hidden, the hidden purpose of God. God saving sinners and them becoming more like Him, being sanctified, becoming more like Christ. And the angels, the evil and elect, are looking at this and going, no way! How? And 
after our news, after the news we've had this week concerning Russia, Ukraine, and all the other nations that are affected, do we need to be fearful? When we look at what Christ accomplished from the beginning before the foundation of the world and it's come to pass, do we need to be fearful? Because we know that He understands what's going on and that He's going to work it according to His purposes. We don't need to be fearful, but we do need to be this. We need to be prayerful. We spoke about this week. What about the two years of the coronavirus? Do we look at God? Do you know what's going on? Yeah, He knows what's going on. He's got it figured out. He's got you in, your hand, in His hands. It's the best place to be. The second reason for the mystery Scott just touched on, that God's wisdom be experienced by the church. Hear this because you have it. Hear this because you have it. Beginning in verse 11, this was according to the eternal purposes that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. We have boldness, confidence to come before God the Father. through faith in Christ. I want to conclude this morning by asking you this. After understanding the mystery that has been revealed, are you living and experiencing everything that Christ has accomplished? Are you living and experiencing what He has accomplished? Now hear me, thinking horizontally means this way. Have your relationships with others, especially believers, have you been at odds with one another instead of being reconciled? Scriptures say they will know we are Christians by our love. Thinking vertically means this way. Have you been staying away from the throne of grace because of what you might have done in the past? or maybe this past week, or maybe the past hour before you came to church? Have you been staying away from the throne of grace? Do you know that you've been given salvation in spite of your wretchedness? In spite of my wretchedness, Christ 
in you the hope of glory. Don't you know that God knew you just like he knew the Apostle Paul? He knew that you were nothing when he called you? This is a building up your self-esteem time, let me tell you. You're nothing. I'm nothing. But he is everything. He is everything. And don't you realize that your actions are educating the angels? It's all about grace. You didn't earn it. So don't feel defeated by running to Christ instead of from him, from him. It's through your simple faith in Jesus that you can come to the throne. I finish with this. Take the advice from the writer to the Hebrews. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't know if you're like me, but I need help 24-7. Come to him.